This is the Savvy Philanthropist Podcast. My name's Kirk. We are a financial planning podcast for people who want to do philanthropy well. Whether you're a donor trying to do some good in the world, or you're a development officer trying to connect resources with the people who need them, this podcast is all about how to navigate our U.S. legal and financial system in order to make the greatest philanthropic impact you can. This is episode 41, a more than incidental benefit. Last week, we dove into a few scenarios where DAFs don't work as well as donors sometimes think or hope they will. One of those scenarios is when a donor wants to use a donor-advised fund to pay off a charitable pledge. On that topic, I mentioned a provision in the Internal Revenue Code that causes this particular problem. Today, instead of moving on to our next topic, I decided to do a deep dive into exactly what the issue with that statute is. I thought a few listeners might be interested to see exactly how deep the weeds can go when we dig into the tax code. I love this stuff, and I hope maybe one of you, one or two of you do too. My hope is that we might be able to bring some clarity to a controversial topic for those of you who work in this area. The statute at issue is section 4967 of the Internal Revenue Code. If you're looking it up, as I'm sure all of you are right at this very moment, the exact reference is 26 U.S.C. section 4967A1. Here's the statutory language. Deep breath. There is hereby imposed on the advice of any person described in subsection D to have a sponsoring organization make a distribution from a donor-advised fund, which results in such person or any other person described in subsection D receiving directly or indirectly a more than incidental benefit as a result of such distribution, a tax equal to 125% of such benefit. So there it is. Plain as day, right? Just kidding. Let's break this apart a bit. What it says is that if a DAF donor advises the sponsoring organization to make a distribution, and then the donor receives a benefit as a result of that distribution, then a tax is imposed on the donor at the level of 125% of the value of whatever benefit the donor received. Let's put this in concrete terms. Mr. Smith establishes a DAF. Mr. Smith then advises the DAF to make a distribution to State College. As a thank you, State College sends Mr. Smith two football tickets worth a total of $100. If the IRS hears about this transaction, then Mr. Smith might get hit with a punitive tax of $125. You can kind of see how this provision makes sense. Donors aren't supposed to get personal benefits from charitable gifts. Section 4967 really just ensures that this principle is extended into the realm of DAFs. Now, how does this apply to charitable pledges? To answer that, we need to review what charitable pledges are. We know what they are in regular usage. They're a promise by a donor to make a charitable gift in the future. However, as a legal matter, there's a bit more to it. Technically speaking, a charitable pledge is actually a contract. A lot of donors don't realize that. Under the laws of just about every state, a charitable pledge is enforceable in court as a contract. The specifics differ a little from state to state, but the result is almost always the same. If Mrs. Jones signs a $10,000 pledge to private university and then decides she'd just rather not pay, then private university technically has the power to sue her in court for $10,000. Now, to be clear, it is the rare charitable institution that will sue its own donors for anything, much less a charitable gift. There is no surer way to convince donors that they actually do not want to give to your institution than to threaten them with future litigation. The only times you might ever see this sort of lawsuit is if the charity had already spent a bunch of money based on the promise of the incoming pledge. For example, if a donor made a large pledge payable over a couple of years, and based on the expectation of those gifts, 
a charity started putting up a new building. In the event that the donor then decided not to pay the pledge, the charity just might have to go to court since it doesn't do anybody any good for the charity to own a half-completed building that it can't finish. But beyond something like that, it's basically unheard of in recent decades for a charity to sue a donor over an unpaid charitable pledge. Nonetheless, the law holds that a charitable pledge is an enforceable contract between the donor and the charity. So how does this bump up against DAFs? Well, let's think through the logistics of the scenario we're talking about. Step one, donor funds a DAF. So now the sponsoring organization owns the money, the donor doesn't. Step two, donor signs a charitable pledge with the charity. Donor now has a legally enforceable debt to the charity. Step three, donor advises the sponsoring organization to make a distribution to the charity. And step four, charity accepts the DAF distribution as satisfaction of the donor's legally enforceable debt. Did you catch that snag in step four? That's where the problem is. The DAF paid off a debt owed by the donor. That's the issue. Go back to the language of section 4967. That provision imposes a tax if the donor receives a, quote, and here's the magic language, more than incidental benefit, unquote, as a result of the distribution. Put simply, does the satisfaction of the donor's debt qualify as a more than incidental benefit? That's the key issue in this scenario, and it is, it is exactly where the potential ambiguity lies. The sections of the Internal Revenue Code about donor-advised funds were enacted in 2006. That's when this issue was codified. Ever since then, practitioners have been asking for some clarity about this problem. Is this a more than incidental benefit? Well, in 2017, the IRS took an important step for providing that clarity. It published a notice that described some of the problems arising from the ambiguity in section 4967. It then asked for public comments on these issues, and it received quite a few. Unfortunately, that's where the process stopped. As far as I've ever heard, the IRS has not yet incorporated those comments into any sort of formal rules or clarifications about this. So the ambiguity remains. And so where does that leave us for the moment? Well, it leaves us right where we started. As you might imagine, charities are not very excited at the prospect of the IRS imposing taxes on their donors as punishment for advising DAF distributions. So charities have always taken the conservative approach. Almost universally, universally, charities tell their donors that DAF distributions may not be used to satisfy charitable pledges. And every sponsoring organization of which I'm aware says the same thing. Most of them make it sound like this is an open and shut legal case, but the truth is, it's all about that ambiguity written into the tax code. I don't think there's any reason to hope that DAFs or charities will change their position until the IRS clarifies this issue one way or another, but that's where we are today. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you know other people who might find this podcast worthwhile, please share it on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling particularly generous, a rating or review for the show on whatever podcast service you use would really help to get the word out about the show. You can find The Savvy Philanthropist on the internet at thesavvyphilanthropist.net. You can find me on LinkedIn at the link below in the show notes. And you can follow me on Twitter where I am at Ross Plan. Lastly, if you have any ideas, suggestions, or helpful insights, feel free to email me at thesavvyphilanthropist at gmail.com. That's it for episode 41. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming. I'll talk a bit about the controversy that seems to follow DAFs around. Until then, remember, do well, then do good, but always be savvy.